0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Today is uh, Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. Um, And I am fortunate today to be able to have a conversation with Dr. Emily Chamley Wright, who is the president of the Institute for Humane Studies. Thank you, Emily, for coming on here with me today.
2: I am so excited to be here with you, Pete.
1: All right, Emily, uh, last year you published an essay, actually almost exactly a year from around this time, when I think it was released in January of 2022, on the four corners of liberalism. Uh, This is your ingenious way to lay out the intellectual terrain for the liberal project for the 21st century. So could you explain to um, our listeners uh, what you have in mind and how uh, this has shaped your thinking about plans of actions and plans of thought?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. And let me pull the lens back here a little bit and, um, that draws a connection to uh, you and uh, this podcast and um, the broader project that, that you also have been driving is that, um, you know, one of the many things that connects us is a commitment to the good society, a society that is, um, you know, defined as a society in which we are given the freedom uh, to pursue our best selves, to pursue our best lives, to Uh, tap the great creative force that that freedom affords and allows individuals to flourish in myriad ways and uh, allows us to um, reap the benefits of of widely shared prosperity. These, you know, this promise of the liberal project that allows us to govern ourselves as free people, that allows us um, to live in a context of social peace, and widespread cooperation. That project is in so many ways, you know, the whole point of everything that I've been doing over the course of my career, um, from the time I was uh, um, you know, an economics professor to where I am now as uh, leading uh, the Institute for Humane Studies. And the through line is um, the uh, classical liberal intellectual community, that you have been such a part in um, uh, fortifying, training, uh, and that the Institute for Humane Studies is is committed to um, uh, supporting and advancing and, and ensuring that there's opportunities to apply these principles and ideas to the fresh challenges uh, that we're facing in the world. So that's the that's the big vision, and in the midst of all of this, you know, we, we, we see threats of illiberalism on the rise from, you know, both extremes of the ideological divide, uh, which, which then says, okay, this thing called liberalism, what is it that uh, you're trying to uh, fortify? And it seemed to me that there was a lot of um, people speaking from different dimensions of the liberal project as if they weren't recognizing people at from speaking about the liberal project too, from a different dimension. So that, in that, that was the inspiration for the four corners. So if you imagine, uh, you know, like literally just, just a box, right. Um, and at each of the four corners of the box called the liberal project, each of the four corners, um, Helps to map out. It's sort of a map taken together. It's sort of a map of the of the fullness of the liberal project. So, at one corner is political liberalism. This is the liberalism that um, most people who are educated in the United States uh, will have the strongest connection to because it's the you know the Declaration, the principles embedded within the Declaration of Independence, for example, are you know articulated there. Um, uh, constitutionally constrained government that these are the that's the sort of the political liberal project um the the corner that many of us particularly those who are trained within the classical liberal tradition of of um the economics discipline you know kind of you know call out from the you know we're certainly in having have in view the political liberalism corner but we're at at another corner which is the economic liberalism corner which Essentially, says um, we need the elbow room that allows people to experiment, to um, to identify ways they can create value, while respecting the rights, the individual liberties that are guaranteed by the political liberalism corner what are the ways that we can come to uh we can find opportunities to collaborate and cooperate so that we can create value together as um uh, co-producers of something as consumers as 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 producers as partners in the economic terrain that elbow room is what drives the widely shared prosperity that is part of the liberal promise you know if you Drop down to the lower right-hand corner. That corner um, is the intellectual liberal project. That you know the the ideals of Enlightenment era liberalism that says that uh, we have tremendous opportunity to um, improve the human condition if we allow for the free exchange of ideas. The John Stuart Mill uh, perspective that openness and intellectual inquiry is what opens the taps to um, intellectual progress and human progress more generally. And then there's the fourth corner, uh, which is cultural liberalism. Some might want to call it social liberalism. This is the liberalism. This is the part of the liberal project that allows that same sort of openness, that same sort of elbow room we have in the economic and intellectual corners that also says so long as we are respecting the liberties, the individual rights of others, that there is an opportunity to experiment culturally as well. That no one is imposing through force an end telos, an end purpose. Instead, it is uh, uh, within the within the four corners of of uh, the liberal project. There's a tremendous opportunity for us each to pursue the good life as we know it. And out of that pursuit, you can eventually get a a pluralism that could be religious pluralism. It could be pluralism in in, just how we see the world. It could be pluralism in who we count as our closest friends um, and associates. That pluralism that is um, is part of what comes out of that cultural liberalism ethos. But that but those are the four corners. And it was important to state what those four corners are because so often we're sort of like mentally policing who's in and who's out of the liberal project because of the vantage point that we have, because we're more situated within the, you know, one corner and and we're casting out those at the other corners. Uh, and, and that, that I think, is a mistake, because what happens is then the liberal project as a coherent project starts to lose its understanding of itself. And that is, I think, where we are right now. And the pr- opportunity in front of us is to remind ourselves and our fellow liberals what liberalism means, what its promise is, uh, what the tensions are within liberal society and what the opportunities are for identifying common ground where we can link arms with our fellow liberals, even if we have significant policy disagreements across the four corners.
1: I, I'm very fascinated by a line that you mentioned about not seeing the others in the different corners. Um, we, you and I are both students of Don's. I'm going to bring this up in a little bit, uh, Don LaVoy, that is, and um Uh, I've been thinking a lot about my comparative course with him recently. Um, And, um, you know, we had to read this book by Martin Jay called Totality. I I don't know if you had to read that by the time that you were having. You were just a couple years apart from each other. Um, But uh, this is in the mid 80s. um, And this is a book about the totality project um, that uh, Marxism entailed. And uh, what that did in terms of the entire society kind of idea. And the opposite of that totality project is, in fact, the liberal project, which is about openness and all these issues that you were just talking about. And, uh, and so to me, you know, when Don was teaching us these things and we were learning through juxtaposition you know, of, of this system versus that system, you know, he, he did all the system stuff. So we, you know, we read about fascism, we read about, you know, communism, we read about various different models of market socialism. Um, but it also was the case that we also read about radical liberalism. And I remember at the time in the in the late 80s, um, there was a, a Steve Macedo uh, was coming out with a book uh, that he was working on at IHS, actually. Um, called liberal virtues, and in that he really embraces this other side of liberalism, which is the experiments in living. And if I think about other great classical liberal thinkers that I've been exposed to through IHS, like Chandran Kukathas, again, you know, sort of it's it's not necessarily always that just that economic corner, right? It's not always necessarily just the political. Liberal project from Montesquieu forward or whatever. It's also these, you know, the the, the intellectual project, but bigger the cultural project. Like, what does it what does it mean to live in a liberal society? And the other thing I was just going to bring up, which I thought, I, I I puzzle all the time. I'm I'm very, I'm very persuaded by this Daniel Dennett rules of engagement, uh, and one of the rules in the Dennett idea is that the person you are criticizing has to recognize themselves in your criticism. Um, and in, in all of the recent criticisms of the liberal project, uh, especially our version of the liberal project that have come out of recent in the last, uh, you know, five years or so, I, I don't, it's hard for me to see The people that they're criticizing in those models, whether or not it's Jim Buchanan or Milton Friedman or Hayek or whoever, right, or myself, it's hard to see, you know, like, that's not our position. And and it, it goes to this point that you mentioned about human flourishing, because to me, from the first time I learned economics, literally the first time I learned economics as an undergraduate, I understood that what Adam Smith was trying to get us to think about was to maximize human flourishing while minimizing human suffering. Not maximize human flourishing and who cares about those who might suffer, right? So, which is how other people see us. And so I I, I think one of the things that your terrain allows us to do is one, to, you know, put economic liberalism in the same terrain as cultural epistemic and political liberalism um, and see the connections between them, but also to maybe give us some insight as to why it is that maybe we don't get seen is because maybe we're not seeing others, right? So if we don't see the others, then it's natural for them maybe to not see us as well. And so this maybe is a, is a problem with our discourse, um, I don't know. That's just a, yeah, that's I, more of a me, statement than a question. I apologize. Yeah. No, no,
2: no. Let, let me unpack it a little bit. So um, first I want to go back to uh, Don, one of Don Lavoy's core lessons was that systems come as package deals. Uh, you know, and you'll uh, you'll remember that point, right? You know, that, that this yeah. is that um, you can't just pick and choose attributes of one system and say, we really like um uh the you know the orderliness of uh a, a you know of a highly politically repressive regime but we want all of the innovation and creativity and um and the good stuff that comes with freedom it's sort of like you can't have it, you can't have that in both you know you can't have it both ways right um so if you're going to have a, if you're going to get the benefits of a lot of freedom Um, there's going to be some detrius that comes along with that freedom. So, you know, if you, if you, if you love the, um, you know, the classical music that comes from, you know, artistic freedom, you're also going to, you know, deal with uh, music that you don't like very much, right? Um, That you have to tolerate that. So, so this is, this is his package deals uh, kind of point. Um, And I think that there is this is the other point behind the four corners um, configuration. Is it's not just to label the four different attributes. That's part of it, but it's also to point to the the you know the relationships between each of the four corners. So you know in your mind's eye, you've got this box with you know labeled the four um, aspects at each corner. Well, each corner is got a double-headed arrow to each of the other corners and what do i mean by that i mean by that that there is both a reinforcing dimension between each corner and also a tension between each corner so um if you if if you're focused on intellectual or epistemic liberalism um one of the uh, core things that makes that possible is uh, First Amendment principles up in the political liberalism corner? So, it's it's like you know uh, the First Amendment is like a, a necessary but not sufficient condition for robust intellectual discourse, right? Um, but it but it's absolutely a supportive mechanism. It's a supportive rule of the game. Um, but at the same time, um, you know there is tension. Between uh, those two poles, as well, that that um, freedom of speech, when we're talking about freedom from oppression from the government, means that you can also do things like like lie. You can um, you can you know spread you can spread falsehoods. You can say things that are not particularly um, helpful in uh, intellectual discourse. It doesn't really help us seek truth. Um, uh, And that's protected speech uh, from the First Amendment. So why? So there's a bit of a tension between, say, the bigger, the you know, the bolder project of epistemic liberalism is truth seeking, right? So um, there's a tension there because people can say things that are factually incorrect, knowingly incorrect, right, Um, out there in the world. Then that creates a tension for the truth seeking process. Tension doesn't mean death of the truth-seeking process. Attention between the two corners doesn't mean that one corner annihilates the other. And this is this is, I think, one of the mistakes made by um, recent critics of liberalism: is that they point to attention as if that's a, uh, a you know a bug in the system. Rather, it's a it's a feature of the system, right? And so one of the, um, you know, things that we have going on in our epistemic liberal corner is you have a lot of bottom up self-governance going on within intellectual communities that, that say, you know, no crackpots, please. Um, you know, we want, uh, we want to, uh, have, um, a self-governed system of intellectual discourse. And that means, you know, abiding by, um, uh, rules of the game that you that you can't lie for example and that you're drummed out of of polite intellectual society if you're if you um, fabricate evidence and pass it off as um, part of the truth seeking process that doesn't fly and and that and so the policing around talk or what I prefer to say is the governing the bottom-up governing around, specific speech within specific communities is a response back to the tension that's created uh, between uh, the two corners. And that and that tension is valuable. It's sort of like, and you could point to any pairing across the four corners um, to say that, okay, economic freedom over here creates a kind of tension where um, it... it Advertising campaigns, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, commercial society more generally, kind of um, creeps into our private lives, into our intimate sphere, in ways that, um, you know, have a kind of corrosive effect. Okay, if that may be true, but there's a response back that you can have within civil society um, that pushes back, that pushes back against um, that that uh, boundary crossing there's freedom enough in civil society to push back so that what is seen as a you know a tension between these two things doesn't mean that economic or commercial life corrodes family life or the intimate sphere it means that it can create a tension but that tre- that tension creates a response back a sort of self-governing response back and that response is itself an important facet to strengthening the art of association, the civil society musculature is, is built up in part in response to these kinds of tensions. And so I see the four corners as being systemic in this way, sort of like a tension, uh, a suspension bridge. You know, the tensions within a suspension bridge are not flaws of the, of the bridge, it's a feature of the bridge, right? The tensions are part of the system that keeps these nodal, you know, these anchor points from flying off right there. It keeps them hanging together into a coherent system. And so I do think that there is a system like quality to these four corners of liberalism where each is needed to kind of check the other. Um, and it doesn't mean that in any given moment that we sort of ha- have some sort of, um, uh, platonic ideal. In fact, you're not going to get that because liberalism is a dynamic system, right? Um, and and but it's part of the dynamism is also part of what allows the system as a whole to carry a heavy load to flex when winds change. Um, it allows the suspension bridge of liberalism to to flex and carry that load, even given that even given that um, uh, those new challenges that it perhaps hasn't faced before. So that's kind of how I think about this. And let me, let me stop there. Um,
1: No, I mean, I think that that, that's uh, really uh, fantastic and brilliant, actually. Um, You know, uh, when I was younger, um, I used to get frustrated with Frank Knight. And I always thought that Frank Knight was either the uh, most arrogant person I ever read, uh, the most brilliant person I ever read, or the most confused person I ever read. And so I just kind of like, ah, you know, that's too much work. Um, but in dealing with the current conversation that we're having, um, and, uh, you know, Knight's uh, identification of various tensions within the liberal project and the democratic project, um, I think he's actually, uh, you know, was on something. Um, because he understood the issue having to do with the older religious wars and so why you needed liberalism to overcome that. But then he also is concerned about the tensions as you just put it put out because he's concerned with things like um, what happens when democracy by discussion is distorted by motivated reasoning, uh, right, or is distorted by deception, and, you know, like charismatic uh, leaders and things like that. And, and that threatens the idea that we can have intelligence and democratic action, right, when we're misled. And so I think there's all these things that we have to grapple with that you that what makes for the society is these reinforcing nodes um, and that you can't. And again, back to Lavoie's point, you really can't have economic liberalism unless you have the other four corners, uh, yeah, other, three and, corners, other three corners.
2: Yeah, and there, and and by understanding the eco- economic liberalism corner, though, it really really helps us. If you have an economic way of thinking, understanding about the world, um, you know there are ways in which that can go wrong, and we can talk about that. But there, but the ways in which it goes right is we start to, if we understand the way markets work, we understand that markets are a learning system. It's a it's a process of social learning that. Um, that that the marvelous the marvel that is the market is that we can make use of knowledge that you and I don't even possess directly. We we gain the benefits of knowledge that's embedded within our uh, machines, from the simplest kitchen tool to something as complex as the computer uh, that we're um, having this conversation on. Um, And everything that goes into it that's all embedded knowledge that we don't need to have to essentially make use of it all of that is like is working in collaboration with us that allows us to um uh uh, forge and deepen our relationships that allows us to become more productive um that way of understanding market process the market process is that it's a learning system if if one entrepreneur gets it um, wrong or fails to keep up with another entrepreneur who gets it more right, um, then the whole—it's not just that that entrepreneur learned; it's that the whole system learns. The, the you know the the winning idea gets embedded across the capital structure, right? And so, economic liberalism is a system of learning, but so too are all the other four corners, right? Cultural systems are a system of learning. As well, I think we're always in a context of of cultural social experimentation in a free society, and uh, and even in unfree societies, there's there's a, it's a what always amazes me is in radically unfree societies the fact that people will still engage in cultural experimentation even when the costs are incredibly high. I'm thinking of women for right now, like like trying to get an education in Afghanistan or. In Iran, and there could be severe penalties—physical penalties—to them, and they're doing it anyway. Well, to me, that you know, that demonstrates the, the the great creative force of people's desire to be free. But notice that that in this tugging and pulling, in these processes, in these cultural processes. There's there's experimentation and learning as well, and we see it. You know, if we think about the um, gay rights movement in our lifetime, I mean, what what a what a transformation has happened in your and my lifespan. Amazing, and all of that comes out of a context where, and I would say, starts with with economic liberalism. You know that that you know the Um, that the gay rights community and uh, the gay bar scene are inextricably linked. That if you have some wedge of economic freedom, and that wasn't even very free, you know, because you could be shut down, right? But people would pursue what sliver of freedom they could find there and create social spaces that made... It' okay to be me, right? And out of that, you emerges a social movement that now is astonishingly different. When you, you and I were growing up, uh, the thought that we that you would have um, openly gay married couple living right next to, next door to you, and that it no one bats an eye, that seemed like a bridge too far even amongst um, socially progressive people that I hung out with as a kid, right? That was like a far off dream and we've achieved it, right? Well, how did we achieve it? We achieved it through experimentation, a lot of cultural experimentation that was supported by, you know, some degree of political liberalism, some degree of economic freedom, and, and, and also intellectual freedom too, right? You had, you know, the, the writing of books and essays and uh, emergence of, of, um, uh, uh, gay rights, periodicals, etc. all those pieces pulled together. And one of the things we learned is that can happen. That kind of social innovation can happen. And we survived society as we knew it, didn't, it did not fall apart. Right. And That, to me, is the great promise of liberalism, is that there's this kind of learning across all four corners.
1: Well, I love your stress in your essay on, you know, openness, humility, and optimism. And uh, I want to go back to these things in a a few minutes. Um, But let's pick up on your uh, point about economics, because you're a trained economist, uh, you were a development economist who did field uh, research in Africa, and um, and then you were also an economist who did work on disaster and recovery um, and um, looking at the interrelationship between entrepreneurship and various different uh, institutions. Um, as you just mentioned, some of those institutions that you studied in Africa were in fact quite uh impediments but yet creative people still found ways around them uh, especially uh, female entrepreneurs right uh and uh, so maybe you could just talk a little bit about the relationship that you see between uh your work on those issues as background uh framing your eyeglasses for example by which you see the world and this more recent uh focus on the broader you know step back where you're looking at um you know the broader interaction effect between these various liberalisms
2: yeah um going back to the you know my first entree into uh the life of the mind as an economist it was my my excitement for it was that was animated by this thought what if Women around the globe had full economic freedom. How prosperous would the globe be? What would that unlock? And you know, one way to look at that is just okay. Well, there are then these um, you know homo economicus uh, beings um, uh, that that are potentially productive uh, agents and, you know, that unleashes prosperity. But I, you know, what was was curious to me are all the ways in which economic life is embedded within culture, for good or for bad, right? Um, It was cultural embeddedness that kept women in many places in the globe, still do, Uh, from being economically free. And it is the cultural embeddedness that allowed female entrepreneurs under very, very difficult circumstances exercise their creativity to flex markets, to flex the freedom that they could find within um, oftentimes informal market settings to acquire resources that enabled them to have greater autonomy and sphere, and and broaden out their sphere of autonomy and authority and control, that sphere might be still quite limited and might be quite small, um, but it mattered to them, right? Because in the context of sub-Saharan African female entrepreneurs, one of the first things women do with resources when they um, are able to accumulate some is they is they direct it towards their children. Towards the children's nutrition, education, um, and that often is their security, uh, th- their social security uh, plan, right, um, and their insurance plan, their 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 plan for again, uh, you know, planning for the future for themselves as well as as well as their the next generation. Um, This to me was fascinating and the conversations around economic liberalism. um, I always felt like I had two audiences that I kind of had to to sort of like, you know, get, you know, keep pushing my elbows out in both directions. You know, so on the one hand, I was pushing back against, um, you know, progressive uh, liberal professors who had um, portrayed. Women in the developing world context, very much as victims, all, you know, only um, that there was and the and they were what they were victims to was essentially ca- capitalism, and and I wanted to understand that claim and uh, and learn the history of how it was that you know so many informal markets were dominated by women. Um, and oftentimes there is a mixed con you know a mixed history around how this happens and it's oftentimes interwoven with uh, co- uh colonialist past but what emerged in my mind is that is that um in communities where women were dominant within the informal market sector they were flexing that access to the market as a means of exercising Uh, much greater autonomy over their own uh, resources and their own lives. And so that was part of the conversation is that I had to push back against um, the sort of left of center academic sensibilities that would have women in the developing world always portrayed as the kind of um, uh, victim of market forces, not you know, actually, people who were um, uh, flexing it to their own advantage. At the same time, I always felt like I had to kind of uh, push back against our crowd too, right? Of of academic economists who are generally pro market, free market kind of uh, you know types. Um, in that they often portrayed um, market mechanisms and market functionality in completely a cultural terms, and so that missed both, um, challenges of, uh, that, that real people on the ground really face, um, in terms of their access to, um, the benefits of the market order. And also it, it, it robbed them of seeing some of the most interesting research questions out there is how people, how do people navigate complex environments, uh, Form expectations, form plans. Try try to solve their their challenges. Learn from that. Revise their plans. Cast it out again. You know how are how are they acting entrepreneurially in this way, but not as sort of like these cultureless agents, but as people who are firmly embedded within a given cultural set a, a system of of cultural norms and practices. That both enable and inhibit, right? Um, you know, fr- uh, freedom of movement, freedom of exchange, freedom of, of um, uh, just even the freedom to even imagine what one's future can be like can be constrained by uh, uh, these kinds of cultural and political, sometimes, oftentimes, and and social structures. And so it seemed to me that that there was an impulse amongst our crowd to sort of. Just dismiss, um, you know, all the really interesting stuff going on within cultural anthropology, within sociology, that was pointing to um, uh, structures that inhibited um, free flow of resources, um, human and other otherwise, and that was a missed opportunity for really understanding the the um, socially embedded nature of our of the market process.